Good morning, church family. My name is Zach Kirby. Um, I'm one of the lay elders here at Northwest Community Church. Uh, my wife, Kelly, and I have been attending here for about 11 years. Uh, we have five kids. The oldest is 22. We'll be getting married in just a couple weeks. Our youngest is three, so we're busy. Um, but yeah, so it's my honor to be able to close out our series this morning uh, for the summer on Proverbs. But before we get into our main passage, I want to take us back a bit to the beginning of creation, not just the beginning of our series. I want to talk about how God created the earth. So when he created the earth, he created it in order, and he created it with order. And what I mean by that is if God had created plants before he created water and light, the plants couldn't thrive, they couldn't grow. If he had created man before he created dry land, well, we'd either all have to have gills or it would have been a short-lived experiment. So, so when you look at creation, you can see that there are laws, and creation follows laws. It follows order. There are rules, there are laws that all of creation has to obey. For example, you look at the earth. The earth is a certain distance from the sun, and it orbits the sun at a certain speed. And we don't have to worry about that. We don't have to wake up in the morning and think, hmm, what if the earth's going to do its thing today? Right? It's tilted at a certain angle from the sun as it rotates. It gives us our seasons. It gives us night and day. We don't have to worry about how long our day is going to be. We don't have to worry about how long the night's going to be. We know because it's always the same. We can even send a man to space, land him on the moon, because we can make the necessary calculations based on the laws that we know are true about our created order. We don't have to guess. Our natural laws are constant, they're consistent, and they're unchangeable. I don't think many people would argue with that. It doesn't matter how we feel about it. It doesn't matter what we believe about it. It's always the same. So just as there are physical laws and physical rules that govern our physical universe, there are also spiritual and moral laws that govern our moral universe. They may not be as easy to see as the physical laws at first, but they're there nonetheless. So we're going to take a look at Galatians 6, 7 through 9. You can turn with me there if you'd like. It's also up here on the screen. Paul is writing about the moral law of sowing and reaping. And he writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So Paul's audience would have immediately understood the farming reference there about sowing and reaping. And it's another physical law by which our creation must abide. If I sow some apple seeds, there's no randomness to what's going to grow, right? It's going to be an apple tree if it grows. It's not going to be wheat. It's not going to be barley. It's going to be an apple tree. Same is true in the moral realm. Paul makes it clear that when we sow, we have two options. We can sow to the flesh or we can sow to the Spirit. And our sowing will produce fruit, 
but the type of fruit depends on the seed that we sow. This morning, we're going to look at four main points regarding sowing and reaping. Okay, the first point is going to be just kind of an overview of what sowing and reaping is, how it works. Then we're going to move on to how we know what kind of seed we're sowing. And then I'm going to clear up some misconceptions about what sowing and reaping is. And finally, we're going to look at how we can effectively sow to the Spirit instead of the flesh. And that brings us to our main passage today in Proverbs. To look, we're going to look and see what it means to sow and reap in Proverbs uh, chapter 1. So if you want to turn there, we're going to look at verses 29 to 33. And as is the case in many of the Proverbs, the conversation here is between wisdom and the reader. So this is wisdom speaking. It says, Because they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way, and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. So wisdom's given some pretty serious warnings to the reader. And if you go back a few verses to verse 22, it says, where wisdom asks, How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? And then at the end of our passage in uh, verse 32, wisdom draws attention to the fruit of those ways, which is death and destruction. So the message is clear. We will reap what we sow. But who are the simple ones? There are some translations who translate it as the naive one. But the implication is that it is somebody who is easily enticed or misled. And the passage says they hated knowledge. They despised reproof. They didn't choose the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1.7 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and that fools despise wisdom and instruction. So these simple ones, they wouldn't listen to instruction. And notice that they're making a choice here. It's a willful ignorance. They're enticed by the ways of the world, they embrace those ways, and they reject wisdom and truth. It also, this passage also makes it clear that there comes a time where God is going to leave you to your devices, and they're going to allow people to have their fill of their own devices. And that's a sobering thought. But there is hope. So if we listen to wisdom, and we pursue the fear of the Lord... We embrace his word, that means we can be at ease. We don't have to fear disaster. That doesn't mean that disaster won't come. It doesn't mean bad things won't happen. I think we can all attest to that as believers. But what it means is that we don't have to fear it. It means that we can trust that the God of the universe, the God that didn't spare his own son because he loved us so much, the God that has ordained the events of our days has also ordained these events in our lives for our good and for his glory. It says in Psalms 112 about the righteous man that he is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid. Now, while biblical wisdom teaches us to fear the Lord and to love wisdom and instruction, the world has a different take on that. The world will tell us things like follow your heart. Live your truth. 
do what makes you happy. Be true to yourself. And on the surface, these all sound like great things. I mean, what's wrong with being happy? What's wrong with doing things that, that make you happy as long as it doesn't harm somebody else? Well, that's why it's important to, to know wisdom and to know what Scripture says. So let's see what it says about our heart. Proverbs 21.2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Jesus says in Mark 7 that one com- what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Then, of course, in Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Not getting a real rosy picture of our heart here. I don't feel like that's what I want to follow. About truth, Psalm 119 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Proverbs 35, Every word of God proves truth. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. John 1.17, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. And John 14.6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So God's word is true. Jesus is true. And we analyze the social mantras against Scripture, we can see where they fall short. Bible is clear that our heart can't be trusted. It's full of deceit and vile things that, if left unchecked, they're going to lead to our destruction. Bible is also clear that truth is found in Jesus and the Word of God only. As believers, we believe the Bible is inerrant, it's unchanging, it's the infallible Word of God that He has given us so that we can know truth. And He's also given us our Holy Spirit to guide us and to convict us of sin. And to give us his power that we can live as he has called us. But wisdom isn't gained overnight. It doesn't come through just acquisition of knowledge. It comes through experience and reflection and investment. And often it takes years to, to, uh, to achieve. Tim Keller puts it this way. What happens if you suddenly come to a crisis that demands discernment and self-control? If you haven't learned the hard-won habits of wisdom, of resting in Christ when other comforts are removed, of discerning choices among the bad, the good, and the best, you cannot suddenly develop them overnight any more than you can get ready for the Olympics overnight. So much like sowing good seed, it takes time, it takes intention, it takes effort, and it takes work to gain wisdom. So how do we know what kind of seed we're sowing. The best way to determine what we're sowing is to look at how we're spending our time. There was a new survey published uh, just last month by Pew Research and asked teens about social media and internet usage. Here's some statistics from that survey. You may find a bit surprising. So it said that 95% of teens use YouTube. That's not that surprising. But one in five say they use it almost constantly. 20%. Use it almost constantly. 
46% of the teens say they use the inter internet almost constantly. That's almost half of teens on the internet almost constantly. And 36% said they spend too much time on social media. My guess is that number's going low. But adults aren't immune either. Roughly half of adults say they visit social media sites multiple times a day, and three in 10 say they use the internet almost constantly. Now, social media use and internet usage isn't bad all the time, right? I mean, there's plenty of good things that you can do. You know, there are times where our family's sitting in the family room and Kelly might be doing a target order and I'm probably checking, you know, the stats from the Wolfpack game or checking to see if Carolina lost and um, kids are communicating with friends and it was close, by the way, it was close. Um, and there's nothing wrong with do, doing any of those things, right? There's nothing morally objectionable to that. But the question is, when am I doing it? Am I doing it instead of spending time with my family? Am I doing it instead of engaging with people with me that are in the same room? And that's where we, we lose that time. So we need, to, we need to guard against doing those things instead of connecting with the people that are in the room with us. We have a near constant connection to limitless information. And we're on applications and websites that have algorithms that keep us engaged, right? They, they know what you like and they want you to keep scrolling. They want you to, 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 to stay engaged with their, with their platform. For example, it's well known in my family that I'm kind of a sucker for French Bulldog videos. There's nothing wrong with French Bulldog videos, right? I mean, they're cute. They're, I mean, they're really fun. They're adorable. And um, you know, I'll even send, you know, with, with Coleman, my son, we'll, we send, and Jacob too, and Hayden, we'll send videos back and forth um, just to, as a highlight of our day. And this, that's fine, and it was fine. It was completely fine until my wife sent me a screenshot of a website that was a local breeder that had French Bulldog puppies for sale. Now, we have a dog. I didn't want another dog, but they're really cute. <laughs> so, against my better judgment, we decided to get one. Now, again, nothing wrong with that, but did my viewing habits affect my choice? I think probably. I think a year ago, I would have probably said, no way. I don't need another dog. But I can also tell you, if you ever need a serotonin boost, let me know. You can come see Stella. She's really great. But let's compare our time spent on social media and the internet to time we spend sowing seeds of gospel truth. And this is dedicated time we set aside each week, right? So you're here. That's great. You know, you get like an hour and a half of dedicated time where you're sowing seeds of gospel truth. If you came to set up or you stayed to tear down, maybe you get another hour, right? So shout out to those teams, right? I know there's still spots available if you want to sow some extra gospel seeds in your weeks. Maybe you're involved in a life group, right? That's another two hours per week. Say you have a personal quiet time each morning, right? We'll say three hours for the week. That's 30 minutes a day, but you overslept one day and you didn't quite make it, so we'll give you three hours. Maybe you're even involved in a gather group. Or a Bible study. So we'll say all told, that's around 10 hours per week that you have dedicated to sowing gospel truth in your own life and maybe others' lives. Assuming you have a healthy eight hours of sleep every night, which I'm sure we all do, that gives you about 100 hours of being awake for the rest of your week. So 10 hours dedicated to gospel truth 
leaves another hundred hours of available time. Now we all have priorities and competing things for our time. We got work, you know, we got sports events, we got kids' activities, we got bulldog videos, whatever it is, you got things competing for your time. But how are you gonna spend it? It's an important question to ponder. Because the way you spend your time molds how you think. It, emo- it affects the lens through which you view the world, and it can certainly affect your choices. So what are you doing with your time? Even if the content is morally benign or neutral, how is it affecting you? What seeds are you sowing? You see, our enemy, I don't think, is really concerned with the content on our screens. I don't think his methods always include putting something in your feed that you're going to find morally offensive. I think he's more clever than that. I think he wants you to just keep scrolling. I think he wants to keep you distracted from what's important and to use up your time, time that we don't get back. And we've got to realize with all of our time, we're either sowing to the flesh or we're sowing to the spirit. And there are no guarantees, right? I can't say if you do this, then this is going to happen, whether it's good seed or bad seed. But we can be sure, as scripture says, that sowing to the flesh will reap corruption and sowing to the spirit will reap eternal life. I want to take a look at some misconceptions for sowing and reaping. Sometimes we as Christians can feel like we're a little exempt from that. I mean, after all, we're under grace. Our sins are forgiven through Christ's death and his resurrection. He's paid the penalty for it already. And because of that, sometimes we feel the freedom to sin. And that's reality. But it's a very dangerous place to be. And it is true that for someone who trusts in Jesus, the eternal penalty for your sin is paid. The eternal consequences for your sin have been erased, but they're still reaping when you sow. As we looked earlier in Galatians 6, Paul said, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. His audience was the Galatian church. He was talking to believers. It's the believers that were being deceived into thinking that sowing and reaping didn't apply to them. There are consequences to our sin, some of which may be harmful and long-lasting. I mean, all of us can remember a time where we said something that we shouldn't have said. We did something we regret. In fact, even thinking about that event can bring up some negative emotions. And you can feel it like you were there, like it just happened, no matter how long ago it was. I know it's true for me. Even recalling that kind of painful memory, though, is a sort of reaping. I believe God allows us to remember. He allows us to feel. That's kind of a deterrent for making those choices in the future and to remind us that we're weak and we need God. And God's given us several examples of people in Scripture that have reaped both good and bad seed. So we're going to take a look at those, or a couple of them right now, uh, from the Old Testament. First, we're going to look at Jacob. Jacob's a pretty well-known guy. He's essentially the patriarch of Israel. From his sons came the 12 tribes of Israel. So he's a pretty big guy in the Bible. God even appeared to him in, in a dream and promised him all this land. 
He promised him that his descendants were going to be like the dust of the earth. That's a pretty big promise. But Jacob had his weaknesses. When he was younger, with the help of his mother, Rebekah, they deceived his father, Isaac, into giving Jacob the birthright that belonged to Jacob's older brother, Esau. And they did that. Esau, if you're not familiar, was, was a hairy man, Scripture says. And so Jacob went out and he killed a goat. He skinned it. He took the skin of the goat and he placed it on his arms. And since Isaac was mostly blind by that point, he just he let Isaac feel him. And he deceived his father. And he stole the birthright from his brother. Now fast forward a few years when Jacob has a family of his own. He's got lots of sons. And um, his sons actually deceived him. Why'd they deceive him? Well, they hated their younger, youngest brother, Joseph, and they wanted to kill him. But instead, they just decided to sell him off into slavery. But to deceive Jacob into thinking that Joseph, the youngest son, was dead, they killed a goat. See the parallel there? They took Joseph's cloak, and they dipped it in the goat's blood, and they took it back to his father and said, Joseph's dead. Look what's happened. So Jacob reaped what he sowed. It took a long time, and he reaped much more than what he sowed. And he thought for years that Joseph was dead. A lot of heartache, a lot of tears, I'm sure. But now Joseph, as we said, was sold into slavery. Right? He, was, he was deceived by his brothers. He was betrayed by his brothers. It says here that in, in Scripture that Genesis, in Genesis 37, 4, that they hated him, his brothers, hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. And that's because Jacob loved Joseph more than all of his other brothers. Now, every good parent knows we love all our kids the same, right? We don't have favorites. I mean, we do, but we don't, right? But Jacob showed his favoritism. He, he outwardly loved Joseph more than he loved the rest of his, his sons. God came to Joseph in a dream and showed him that what his plan was for Joseph. He showed him that his brothers were going to be bowing down to him, that he was going to be in a position of authority over them. Now, for some reason, Joseph thought it would be a good idea to share that with his brothers. It didn't go very well. They hated him, and they mocked him, and then they plotted to kill him. Like I said before, they eventually sold him into slavery. And while in slavery, Joseph was falsely accused of assaulting a woman and was thrown in prison. Now, we don't know exactly how long he was in prison, but we know it was at least two years. But he didn't lose his faith. He continued to serve God where he was. Now, if we fast forward a bit, Joseph is released from prison because he, in, he correctly interpreted one of Pharaoh's dreams about a coming famine. Pharaoh was so impressed, he appoints Jacob or Joseph to his second-in-command over his kingdom. At this point, it had been 13 years since Joseph was sold into slavery. 13 years of waiting for this dream that he believed would come true that was from God. Now, based on the dreams interpreted for Pharaoh, Joseph knew there was a famine coming. So before the famine got there, he was storing up all the food that he could for the kingdom. And you see... The famine not only affected Egypt, but it also affected Canaan. 
Joseph's brothers heard that there was food available in Egypt, and so they went to buy food for their family during the famine. And who'd they come to? They came to Joseph, not knowing it was Joseph, and they bowed down to him. See, Joseph faithfully sowed good seed. He served God wherever he was, whether he was in prison or whether he was in power. And no matter his circumstances, God finally showed Joseph the blessing that he had promised him after 13 years of waiting. Now, I want to be clear. The biblical concept of sowing and reaping is not karma. Right? We've all heard about karma. It's got its roots in Indian religion. And what karma really does, is it employs this relationship of cause and effect that if you do these good things, it's going to offer you liberation from cycles of rebirth. So your works are your salvation. It's what your salvation is based on. And we know as believers, that's, that's not the ground of our, salvation is not the ground of our works. We work, we do good works out of worship, out of thankfulness for the work that Christ has already done for us. But they're not how we earn our salvation. We're not looking to earn some merit or favor from God. We're looking to, to worship him and thank him through our good works. It's also, it's not the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel claims, if you do this, then this will happen, right? If you invest in my ministry, you give me your money, then you will be blessed materially or physically in some way, whether it's your health or your wealth or your relationships. So you'll get some kind of earthly blessing. The idea of sowing and reaping is about the blessings you receive from obeying God's word and acting on God's promises. As we read earlier in Galatians 6 to 8, it says, the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. There's no guarantee that you're going to reap these blessings until you rest in your Savior's arms. Finally, we're going to look at what it looks like to sow to the Spirit. I mean, that's kind of where the rubber meets the road here, right? How do we do that? How do we know we're doing that? How do we make sure that what we're sowing is not in vain? So we've got four quick points here that we can consider of how we sow to the Spirit. The first thing you need to do is make sure you choose good seed. Galatians 6, 8 makes it clear. There are two choices. We're going to sow to the flesh or we're going to sow to the spirit. The one who sows to the flesh will reap corruption. The one who sows to the spirit reaps eternal life. We can find many examples of how to sow to the spirit throughout the New Testament. In Galatians alone, we see that we sow to the spirit when we gently restore those who have sinned. We bear one another's burdens. We Financially support teachers of God's word. When you bear the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. When you walk in the spirit. 2 Corinthians 10 tells us that we sow to the spirit when we take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. When you refuse to gossip about someone, like Ryan preached a couple weeks ago, even if it's true. When you refuse that gossip, you're sowing to the Spirit. Every time you speak the truth, you honor your word, offer praise to God for his goodness, you're sowing to the Spirit. In contrast, every time you hold a grudge, you entertain an impure thought, you wallow in self-pity, you speak ill of another person, you're critical of others, you're envious, all those things sow to the flesh. 
as a parent, you could even sow a critical spirit into your children by finding fault in others. You can also sow the spirit, so or sow to the flesh by neglect. Parents, I'll speak to you just for a minute here. If you aren't intentionally sowing good seed into your children, then the world will be sowing the bad seed. If you aren't intentionally investing, teaching them the truth of God's word, demonstrating love, grace, and forgiveness in your home. See, I'm, I'm a father of five, as I said before. There have been times over the years where I've not done a great job of being intentional with my kids and sowing good seed. If I'm honest, you know, planning and, and being intentional is, is kind of a weakness of mine. I'm more of a go-with-the-flow, be-spontaneous kind of guy. However, whether it's with my wife, it's with my kids, it's with my friends, going with the flow often means you miss opportunities. It's opportunities you don't get back. And I can assure you, the enemy is not going to neglect your children. If both good and bad seed are sown, it's likely that the bad seed will prevail if left unattended. As we know from gardening, weeds grow faster, they spread more quickly than the good seed. You have to tend them. I also want to note for you parents, you may get a lot right. You may be intentional. You may sow good seed. You may pray faithfully. may still have children astray. But I want to encourage you. You got to keep sowing. Friend and mentor of mine told me not too long ago, said, free will Trump's good parenting 100% of the time, 100%. The goal of godly parenting is not raising godly children. The goal of godly parenting is being a godly parent. So keep sowing. So the second thing we need to do to effectively sow to the Spirit after choosing good seed is make sure you're sowing generously. But we always reap more than we sow. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So from a farming perspective, if you sow one acre of wheat, you're going to reap whatever one acre of wheat can produce. If you sow 100 acres of wheat, you're going to sow what 100 acres can produce. And the principle works both positively and negatively. Sowing to the Spirit leads to the joy of a righteous harvest, while sowing to the flesh leads to the sorrow of an unrighteous harvest. 
But the good news is as long as we have breath, we have an opportunity to sow good seed and to sow it generously. So after we sow good seed and we sow it generously, you can expect the work to be hard. Galatians 6, 9 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. It's easy to see examples in our society of people toiling for earthly gains. After all, those gains are tangible. You can enjoy them now. But sowing to the Spirit is often long. It's hard work without able, being able to see results right away. And you may never see the results in this life. Sowing to the Spirit implies self-denial, resistance of evil, obedience to the Spirit, being guided by the Spirit. And often sowing to the Spirit means that we sow to reap in eternity with our Lord. But finally, you've got to have proper motivation. Like with anything, if you don't have proper motivation to keep going, it's easy to quit when it gets tough. It's easy to get discouraged when you don't see results. For me, exercising, just for the sake of exercise, is a real chore. It's not something I enjoy. I enjoy being active. I love playing volleyball on Sundays after church with a few folks that show up. I like playing pickleball, going on a hike. But if I try to go exercise just to exercise, I hate it, if I'm honest. I know so many people out here, you get up at 5 a.m., you guys go to F3 or... You go to the gym or you run five miles and just thinking about it, you're like, yeah, let's do it. Not me. I'd rather hang out and watch a movie or read a book or do anything else. Sleep. But I'll lose that motivation quickly if I don't keep focused on what my motivation is. Personal trainers will tell you, you got to have your why. Why are you getting in shape? Why are you losing weight? My why is my family, my health. I said before, I've, I've got five kids. The youngest is three. I'm no spring chicken, right? I've got to stay active. I've got to stay healthy. That's my motivation. My motivation. Our motivation for sowing to the Spirit should be similar. In his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul compliments the Thessalonian church for their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. See, their work and their labor and their steadfastness was motivated by faith in the God they serve, love for the people around them, and hope in the promises of Jesus' return and his promises and his deliverance. We should expect the work to be hard, the soil to be rocky, but the toil will be more, won't be, but the toil won't be more powerful than the spiritual strength available to us through the God who gives us rest, gives rest to the weary. But we must continually renew ourselves in Him and maintain that proper motivation. So now for the believer, here's the good news. There is great the grace of God in the believer's reaping. John Calvin puts it this way. He says, The undeserved kindness of God appears in the very act of honoring the works which His grace has enabled us to perform by promising to them a reward to which they are not entitled. 
So what he's saying is that our good works are only possible through God's grace and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. The believer can anticipate rewards for which he doesn't owe us. He owes us nothing, right? And our, our works are all tainted by remaining sin in our life. But he still rewards us. So to simplify it, God gives us his power to perform his work so that we might be rewarded even though he doesn't owe us anything. It's pretty amazing if you ask me. We serve a good and gracious God. In addition to that, as believers in Jesus, we get the benefit of reaping what he sowed as well. In Romans 5, Paul writes about Abraham that his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In other words, the righteousness of Christ is imputed or credited to us just through faith in him. We reap the righteousness of Christ through faith, not through our works. So the time for sowing is now. The only way we can sow to the Spirit effectively is by living out our values as a church. Having an open Bible, an open life, and an open faith. You've got to spend time regularly with God to gain wisdom and to recharge your own spiritual battery. You've got to invest, you've got an open life and, ha- and invest in relationships around you. And we must have an open faith because that's how we sow the seeds of gospel truth. I urge you, church. Lean on the mercies of God. Don't allow your own shortcomings to to stop you from investing and sowing. No one here is reduced to being a passive sufferer of poor choices in our past lives or some deterministic luck or fate. We have a clear choice. We can sow through the flesh sow to the flesh, or through Christ and faith, we can sow to the Spirit with love and hope that in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So I'm going to close with this quote from John Piper that's a good reminder to all of us. Remember, Christ is your righteousness. Christ is your righteousness. Your righteousness is in heaven. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It doesn't get better when your faith is strong. It doesn't get worse when your faith is weak. It is perfect. It is Christ. Look away from yourself. Rest in him. Lean on him. Please pray with me. God, we are just thankful for your word and that it's true. We're thankful that you didn't leave us on this earth to do works that we can't do. 
but that you've given us your Holy Spirit. You've empowered us. You've strengthened us. You've given us the righteousness of your Son through faith. God, I pray we'd be encouraged by that. And that we know that our good works, our reaping to the Spirit doesn't return void. But that you're at work around us. God, we thank you for loving us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.